today about uh, cravings. How many of you have cravings? Anyone? Probably no one here, right? It's all... So I used to have cravings a lot. I mean, I still do, but they were out of control. Uh, mostly it was uh, cigarettes. I used to smoke a lot. And my father smoked and his father smoked. So there was a genetic uh, predisposition, whether it is to smoking or alcohol or sugar. Uh, it's part of our DNA. And to be able first to even realize that's going on is a big thing. And then it's an even bigger thing to deal with a habitual pattern that was there before we were actually born. Uh, then it went to ice cream, and I would just consume so much. Well, let me just go back. How many smokers or ex-smokers? Anyone here? <clears throat> uh, congratulations if you've managed to quit. And if you haven't managed to quit, um, I know you're trying, and uh, it's a process. We're going to talk about deconstructing cravings. Ice cream, any ice cream fans here? I don't know how it would happen, but once I opened the top of the Ben and Jerry's pint, there was no, you ever do that thing? Well, just a little bit more. Oh, well, I'm just going to pick out the fruit. The fruit is the healthy part. So you want to know that your clients, whether they tell you or not in the initial consultation, have uh, deep uncontrollable cravings and sometimes they're related to food and sometimes they're related to primary food I'll tell you the biggest thing that surprised me when I started doing health coaching was the number of people who were married who were having affairs I was just like are you like they were you ever have that moment when they're like talking to you and you're like keeping a straight face and <laughs> And in your head, you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so having grown up in a conservative, religious, very religious uh, family, I was like, are you kidding me? And then over and over, I would hear that because they, you know, they trust you. And so that's also a craving that's not being dealt with through normal uh, channels. So that was the first one, the affairs thing. And uh, it's, I mean, it's really rampant. And... Uh, the one person in particular who I'm thinking of, um, who was my client, you can tell, it was 25 years ago, she left a big impression on me, and uh, she would come back and be like, oh yeah, this week I slept with like two new guys, and, and I'm like, do you, do you ever think your husband like knows about this? And she's like, oh, definitely not. Do you ever think like he is uh, having an affair too? Him? No, never. And uh, then eventually I met the guy, and I was like, this guy's doing the same thing. And they're like <laughs> staying together for the kids. And then really 15 years later, the kids went to university, and they um, separated and divorced. And So you want to know that although people will come to see you for nutrition and what do I eat, that there is it's like a... Uh, iceberg or glacier that's really just the tip of it and then there's this whole world under
underneath that through the luxury of the six-month program, you're able to, uh, they learn to trust you. They learn to uh, understand that you're listening without judgment. And then they will open up, but like a self-cleaning oven, people will scour the edges of what's incomplete in their mind and in their heart and in their soul and share that with you. And given the right angle, will self-clean on their own what they need to through speaking. Have you, have, do you have experience with that? It helps to ask high mileage questions. It helps to point them in a certain direction. And it also helps, though, to recognize that we are spiritual beings in the material world and that there is potentially a magic of mirroring that's happening, that as they're speaking, light bulbs are going off in your own head about uh, certain new awarenesses and opportunities that are available. So a lot of cravings, uh, whether it's hunger or alcohol or sugar, can be attributed to dehydration. Uh, when I used to teach the program live, I uh, had a deeper, closer relationship with students because we would see each other back to back for 10 weekends. People would always say, well, I know people I have a client or I have an uncle who is alcoholic. And I would say, well, it's very hard to be alcoholic and drink eight glasses of water a day. So I, I noticed in real time that alcoholism is a severe problem in the United States and throughout the world. And uh, a lot of it is a genetic predisposition. If your parents were drinkers, grandparents, you know, your liver is expecting it. The same way as for Native Americans when they had no recognition of alcohol and their liver wasn't expecting it, then it really created so much more havoc for that population group. So sometimes it's not, when I got into this work, I really thought it was being able to share how much I knew about so many different things. And then I realized, whoa, I'm going to go out of business. I can just tell people to drink water and half their problems are going to go away. But it's like exercise. It's one thing to tell people you need to do cardio, you need to do lift weights. And it's another thing to actually have them do it. So same thing with water. Everyone knows they should drink more water, but it takes a health coach to be there with them, check in there with them, and be like, how's it going? And you can't go from zero to 100 miles an hour in two seconds, and you can't go from no water to eight glasses of water in two seconds or two days or two weeks. It takes a, a scaling up and a gradual process. The other side of it is overhydration. You know, people have different body size. Some people are small, some people are big. So if you are small, eight glasses of water, say if you weigh 100 pounds, <clears throat> another person weighs 200 pounds. So that 100 pound person, eight glasses of water is like 16 glasses of water because it's flushing the system in a much bigger way. So you want to be able to gauge yourself to know what is the right amount of hydration. And especially if you're getting up in the middle of the night, 
uh, going to the bathroom. Uh, you want to, you know, what's more important? Getting eight glasses of water? Let me ask you a question. What's more important? Making sure you get eight glasses of water a day or sleeping soundly through the night? A lot of people don't do that. And they become like these zombie walkers at night. I've done it, you've done it, you know what I'm talking about. So it's important to get the water in early in the day and uh, understand what is the right amount for you and to understand that overhydration can also be an issue. Food imbalances. Sometimes, you know, when they put salty nuts on the bar, they know it's going to create a food imbalance for alcohol. When you have a lot of salty food in the restaurant, they know you're going to want to drink more or you want to have a big dessert. So foods that are more uh, whole foods, natural foods, are more, uh, as Paul Pitchford said, more balanced, will create less cravings to one side or the other. So you're not on the roller coaster of food cravings. Inside coming out means that if I have ice cream today, the chances I'm going to crave ice cream two or three days from now are much higher. So you want to be able to catch yourself. That's one of the reasons why we talk about using a tongue cleaner, because a lot of the things that we eat two or three days ago are on our tip of our tongue. So we crave it because we're actually tasting it. So as you brush and floss and clean your tongue, you're uh, craving for what you just ate or your craving for things that you don't really want to be eating will be reduced because you're not tasting it all day, every day in your saliva. Seasonal. We crave fruits and ice cream in the summer, soups and hearty dishes in the winter, uh, lack of nutrients. I remember uh, times when I was macrobiotics and I would only eat whole grains. So it was really funny. So whole grains, whole grains, whole grains, and then I would go to a restaurant, and you know how they put bread in front of you? And I would, I would just polish off the bread. <laughs> because even though theoretically I was wanting to eat whole grains, it was a brain thing, but my body was like, your parents, your grandparents, your great, everyone ate bread. So sometimes we crave things because our mind is trying to create a rule that our body uh, disregards. Many people, including me, have uh, strived to be vegetarian and vegan. And uh, kudos. You know, no one wants to... People have a lot of issues. Dead animals, animal factory farming, things like that. And it is an ancestral understanding that we have that we can survive on plant food and finding the right amount of balance. In addition, it's tremendous ecological harm to, for example, cutting down the Brazilian rainforest so there's grazing for McDonald's and for corporate animal uh, agenda. But on the other hand, you can have not enough protein and... Uh, then you end up sometimes having sugar or having foods you shouldn't be eating because you run out of energy. So now you're like, oh, I need energy, but that is a bad food. But then you, uh, especially if you don't have a health coach, 
swing over to having sugar or junk food uh, to get you, because you need energy to get through life. So maybe have too much coffee, things like that. And the same thing with fats. You can, especially during the era, or currently people who are trying to be on a no-fat, low-fat diet, will, if you will find themselves sometimes binging on high-fat foods like full-fat ice creams, because uh, they have to compensate for... The, the body is smarter, right? If you are carrying a baby, it doesn't matter what you're thinking up here about the rules. Who's in charge is the body. And so you want to be able to have a lot of uh, respect for that. And if you find yourself reaching for foods constantly to take a moment and process, hmm, I wonder what I could do to deconstruct my cravings or the cravings of my client to understand what's going on here. Because if you don't, this could go on for a very long time. Hormonal. You know what I'm talking about, craving chocolate certain times of the month. But it could also be stress-related. Most people have a go-to food. For me, it's like potato chips. You know, I get stressed, but I'll only eat the healthy kind. You have to understand, this is, food is uh, not religion. You know, it's... The 90% rule is that you're going to eat well. You know, I, uh, my partner cooks delicious, loving food all day, every day for me. So you want to be able to be not overly restrictive with yourself, with your spouse, your kids, your clients, and recognize it's not religion. You're not going to, like, food hell after you... God isn't going to ask you, well, how many Doritos did you have this lifetime? Let me just check here. <laughs> food is life. Food is love. Food is fun. You know that, the word orthorexic? It's like, uh, you, how many of you know what? You know orthorexic? So you get too strict is also an ailment. And then there is de-evolution. When everything's going just great, you are feeling fantastic, and then you decide, actually you don't decide, that you're going to eat, eat food that is going to really mess you up. And then you, later you're like, why did I do that? How many, how many of you have had that experience? Everything's going just fine. And then you eat that food and you feel like hell. But it's not just food. It can also be relationship. You're having a great life and then you start dating or marrying or in a work environment becoming friends with someone who is just like, ooh. And then you wonder, can you relate to that? You wonder, like, how did I get here? Partly because when everything is going perfectly well, then we become at one with the universe, and you, you know, you just, in a way, it just can be too good. So there's a certain kind of self-love and self-acceptance that we want to be able to breathe into and appreciate, to be able to go out on a day and just look at the sky and look at the stars and look at the way life has been put in front of us and be like, how amazing is this? 
and I am part of this, and I'm okay with being everything okay. So we don't want to perpetrate ourselves because we want to go back to the old days where we were messed up, which is sometimes what's most familiar for us. Good. So cravings is an important part of working with your clients, working with yourself to be able to step by step reduce the extreme cravings like, for example, cigarettes, alcohol, and drugs and then move to less extreme cravings like sugar. And then sometimes people have like a craving for uh, a piece of chocolate. They're like, oh, now we're, that's a pretty good thing. <laughs> Once you get yourself to that place, you are finding ways to uh, continue to create balance for yourself. But it's important even then that that balance is equally reflected, not just with the food, but with the primary food and to create an overall balance, which leads to an overall uh, sense of well-being, happiness, and longevity. Eight causes of cravings. The body is a biocomputer. It knows when to go to sleep, when to wake up, and when to go to the bathroom. It maintains a temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, refers itself when wounded, and breaks down food into usable energy and nutrient. Your heart never misses a beat, and your lungs never misses a breath. Your body is constantly processing information and monitoring your environment to make necessary internal adjustments to help you keep your balance. Many people viewed cravings as weakness, but often they're important messages from your body to guide you in maintaining balance. When you experience a craving, deconstruct it as yourself what is my body trying to tell me? Eight causes of cravings. One, lack of primary food. Being dissatisfied with a relationship. Having an ina inappropriate exercise routine. Too much, too little, or too wrong kind. Being bored, stressed, or uninspired by a job. Or lacking a spiritual practice can all cause emotional eating. Many people try to cope with uncomfortable emotions or difficult situations by seeking balance through food. Food can provide a form of relief or even an escape. When you're under stress in this way, 
Your food is being used as a strategy to fulfill areas of primary food that aren't being satisfied. Number two, water. Staying hydrated is a great way to help reduce extreme cravings and may ultimately help regulate the amount eaten too much needs more closely. A glass of water before eating has actually been shown to reduce the amount of food consumed during a meal. Another factor to consider is that your hydration status affects your body's electrolyte balance. When you sweat and lose water, you also lose electrolytes, like sodium. This may lead you to seek out sodium-rich foods following an intense workout. Number three, yin-yang imbalance. According to traditional Chinese medicine, certain foods are more yin, which is cooling, while others are more yang, warming. Within this theory, foods are too yin or too yang may lead you to crave the opposite in an attempt to maintain balance. This theory suggests eating foods that are more neutral, like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and beans, and avoiding streams on either end that may lead to cravings. For example, eating a diet rich in sugar, which is yin, may cause a craving for meat, which is yang, and eating too many raw foods, yin, may cause craving for hev heavily cooked foods, which is yang. Number four, inside coming out. Craving often comes from food when you've recently eaten or foods from your childhood. Recently, eaten foods tend to be fresh in your mind. So you're more likely to crave that food in attempt to recreate a positive eating experience. Similarly, when you crave foods from your childhood, you may really be seeking the feeling of comfort. Those foods may have provided you when you were younger. Number five, seasonal. The body often craves food in accordance with the season. In the spring, people crave lighter foods like leafy greens or citrus fruits. In the summer, people crave cooling foods like raw food and ice cream. In the fall, people tend to crave grounding foods like squash, onions, and nuts. And many crave heat-producing foods like meat, oil, and fat in the winter. Craving can also be associated with the seasonal holidays, for example, turkey, eggnog, or Christmas cookies. Number six, lack of nutrients. If the body has inadequate nutrients, it may produce all odd cravings. An extreme example of this is a disorder called pica, which leads to extreme cravings of non-food items like clay. This condition may arise due to a chronic iron deficiency. Number eight, hormonal. When women experience menstruation, pregnancy, or menopause, fluctuating testosterone and estrogen levels may cause unique cravings. Stress has also been shown to after hormones in order to promote cravings. Number eight, devolution. 
any big chance that you may dietary or otherwise isn't going to happen overnight. Sometimes you may revert to old habits because they are familiar or you're not totally ready to let go of them. If this happens, remember to be patient with yourself. Take a step back and recognize that even if your diet got off track briefly, you don't have to throw in the towel. In fact, this is often just a part of the process of changing your diet. Navigate cravings with mindfulness. There are many causes of strong cravings for particular foods or flavors that can make navigating them seem tricky. However, gaining a deeper understanding of how cravings work allows you to mindfully respond to your bio-individual cravings. Navigating cravings with mindfulness. 1. Acknowledge the cravings. 2. Explore the origin with non-judgmental curiosity. 3. Proceed from a place of empowerment. Whether you choose to move forward with fulfilling a particular food cravings or explore another option to nourish yourself, the point is to make educated, empowered decisions work for you. Having cravings isn't a bad thing. In fact, they are sometimes a good indication that you're not getting the nourishments you're seeking, which may not have anything to do with the food. A craving might be a message from your body that is seeking particular food to promote health and well-being. For example, craving nourishing soups when you're not feeling well. But craving can be precipitated by your emotional state, psychological state, diet, routine, or even your surroundings. When cravings arise, they can be a symptom indicating an imbalance occurring elsewhere Investigating cravings is a great opportunity to treat the cause, not the symptom. Being aware of the different factors that may contribute to craving can help you explore the choices that are best for you. If that's eating some ice cream, that's great. If that's opting for carrot sticks, that's also great. Maybe it's even setting aside time to unwind. Well, after some investigation, you might learn is what your body ultimately is seeking. 1. Acknowledge the cravings. If cravings arise, acknowledge them and give them space. Ignoring cravings often make them seem stronger and more powerful. When you make foods you want off limits, it usually has the opposite effect. Rather than letting you to forget the off-limits foods, you end up preoccupied and less equipped to control yourself when you are around them. In this, in this case, mindfully acknowledging and fulfilling a craving may be more pro productive than actively trying to avoid it. The simple act of acknowledging your craving is also may help reduce its power and allow you to dissociate from it. Number two, explore the origin with non-judgmental curiosity. In exploring the origin of your cravings, you may want to ask yourself the following questions. Is this craving occurring alongside a particular emotion or physical feelings? 
Is this craving for a highly palatable food? Is this craving tied to a habit? Is this craving guiding me toward a food that would support my health or well-being? Let's review this question one by one and explore their role in the origin of cravings. Is this craving occurring alongside a particular emotion or physical feeling? Stress, fatigue, loneliness, and even boredom can lead to particular food cravings. In these cases, food won't solve the problem. It would be threatening a symptom which works in the short term but probably isn't your best interest in the long term. Making this distinction can be empowering feeling. It allows you to pinpoint and treat the actual cause which is likely to promote the balance you're seeking. Although there are many physical and emotional feelings that may lead you to crave particular foods, fatigue and stress are most common. When people are tired, they not only eat more but are also more likely to make poor dietary choices. Sleep-deprived individuals are more likely to crave snacks and consume more calories over the course of the day. Lack of sleep has been shown to increase the preference or cravings for calorie-dense food. In particular, frequent craving for these sorts of food may be a symptom of lack of sleep. The more stressed people are, the more they tend to look for comfort in food. This is just one way that stress leads to weight gain. During stressful times, craving for energy-dense, less nutritious food are common, including an, an active that helps you manage stress efficiency can have a major impact on your dietary choices. Is this craving for a highly palatable food? When it comes to exploring the origin of your cravings, there is another important aspect to consider in terms of which foods you're craving. In this sense, not all foods are created equal. In order to make an empowered choice about this food, it's important to know that certain foods called highly palatable foods are designed to be craved. Of course, it's fine to enjoy these foods, but part of being empowered in navigating your craving is being aware of the power that some of this food may hold. If it feels like you're craving sugar, maybe seeking a quick source of energy. It could actually be another symptom of lack of sleep. But research has shown that more sugar, more people consume. The more they prefer it, in a way, you build up a tolerance to sugar. Requiring you to seek out more concentrated sources of consume larger amounts to create the same pleasurable eating experience that is originally produced. Processed foods are designed to make consumers crave them. In fact, the food industry created what has been described as the bliss point. The perfect combination of sugar, salt, and fat that makes people process foods difficult to resist. Often, this combination is created mathematically to appeal to the most people. These products may take years to be fully developed 
and a term of researchers, flavor specialist, engineer, and even statistician. Statisticians may be involved in creating a food with optimal flavor, texture, and feel. Frequent exposure to these types of food is likely to increase desire to them or desire for them. These great foods tend to be higher in calories and fat and lower in protein and fiber. They usually don't offer a ton of nutritional value aside from energy. Is this craving tied to a habit? Sometimes people simply desire a food or a snack because they're used to having it at a certain time or place. In other words, you may gravitate towards a particular food out of routine. For example, it's common for people to feel a drop of energy in the late afternoon and reach for sugary snacks or drinks. Eventually, you may start craving snacks during this time of day simply out of habit. Rather than going on autopilot, take a moment to tune into your body. A brief moment of mindfulness may be enough to help you distinguish between craving something out of habit versus craving due to actual hunger or a desire to mindfully and intentionally enjoy a particular food. Is this craving guiding me toward a food that would support my health or well-being? Have you ever taken a trip where you enjoyed frequently dining out? and eating rich foods and then come home and crave something highly nourishing like a big salad and tons of fresh colorful vegetables this is your body's attempt to return to balance fulfilling a craving may also be also contribute to your well-being beyond a nutritional standpoint for example craving a piece of cake to enjoy amongst friends and family might provide a strong feeling of connection and love. This may be a powerful form of primary food, nourishment from home. Number three, proceed from a place of empowerment. Once you acknowledge your craving and determine its origin, you give yourself the power to identify with it and determine how to proceed in a way that is best for you. Listen to what your body is telling you and enjoy exploring the deeper message that may exist in some of your cravings. Rather than feeling controlled by cravings, the empowered approach allows you to be a curious investigator, seeking out the best choice for you at the time. Don't forget we're always changing. Consider craving as a yardstick to determine if things are out of balance. Whether food will ease that craving if there's another form of nourishment your body is seeking, respect and acknowledge your bio-individual craving as they come up. Cravings are something we are all experienced from time to time. These tips can help you better navigate them when they arise. Pay attention and explore what your body might be telling you. Acknowledge them non-judgmentally. Explore their origin. And proceed from a place of, of empowerment. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson, an Australian journalist and author of New York Times bestseller, I Quit Sugar. Now, I first quit sugar in January 2011. And there were three reasons for doing this. 
The first one is I have an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. It's a thyroid disease, and I'm sure many of you have come across this particular disease. I was told that sugar mucks with my hormones and therefore with my thyroid. I was totally resistant to the idea, which is often a sign of just how addicted you are to sugar. Now, one of the things about thyroid disease is that you're even more susceptible to sugar than the average person. So breaking up is that much harder to do, and you need to trust me on this. The other reason was I was a journalist and I wrote a weekly column where I tested different wellness ideas. Now, one week I was short of a topic and so I very reluctantly decided to quit sugar just to try it out. Now, I tried it out for two weeks, but it felt so good that I just kept going and going and going until today. The final reason why I quit sugar, and like most people, I was also kind of aware of the fact that sugar was the reason why I felt baseline crappy. So why sugar and why is it seen as so bad? Why is it demonised and why are we so resistant to the idea of eating less of it? I'll cover all of this off with you today and share some of the best take-homes that you can share with some of your clients because it really is an incredibly complex topic. A good thing to bear in mind is that when we're talking about the harms of sugar, we're talking specifically about fructose. Everyday table sugar is half fructose and half glucose and high fructose corn syrup is pretty much the same. Both sugar and high fructose corn syrup get pretty bad press these days and so the wellness community has steered us all towards things like agave and maple syrup and honey instead. Now sure, some of these products have you know, extra nutrients, more nutrients than, you know, processed sugar. But they're minuscule, to be honest. So honey, for instance, contains only really 2% nutritional content. It's not a lot. And it's stuff that we can get from other foods anyway with a great deal of ease. The other issue that we've got to bear in mind is that because these things, these sugars like honey and maple syrup, are deemed healthy, we tend to eat a lot more of it. And manufacturers as well of health food products will jam more of these kinds of sugars into their products because we somehow think they're healthy. Now, a really good thing to bear in mind is that when you're sharing this kind of information with your clients or your readers, it's really good to tell them that health food stores are sometimes some of the unhealthiest places to eat. So why is fructose so fraught and why is it so bad for us? Now, the first thing to share with your clients or your readers is that fructose is metabolised predominantly in the liver. While on the other hand, glucose is metabolised by and used up by most of the cells in our body. And it's used as energy directly. So the repercussions of all of this is that fructose is not used as energy, so we eat more of it because we're not getting energy from it. Our liver also freaks out when we eat fructose and so stores it as fat. The final thing is that excess insulin is produced in this kind of messed up process, which leads to insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and a whole range of other metabolic diseases. The other thing I'll mention is that uric acid levels are raised quite significantly in this whole process, which in turn raises blood pressure and increases our risk of hypertension and kidney disease. Another unique thing about fructose is it fails to turn off our appetite mechanisms. We have no off switch for fructose. We do for every other food on the planet, just not fructose. This means we can drink 20 ounces of apple juice or cola and not get full because it fails to turn on our appetite hormones. So try drinking that much, you know, full fat yogurt or, or any other kind of food. You just can't do it because the protein, the fat, triggers certain appetite hormones in our brains which tell us we've eaten enough. And this appetite hormone is called leptin. So fructose interferes with the leptin mechanism. And what it means is that we don't just eat more of sugar, 
but we eat more of everything else as well. Now, add to this, a number of studies point to the fact that sugar is more addictive than cocaine and heroin. Now, admittedly, these studies have been done on rats, and these studies are yet to be done comprehensively on humans, but it does point to a very interesting phenomenon. This is something I'd like to emphasise with everyone here, is that when the science isn't gold standard, that is, it isn't a randomised control trial that's being done, it's always worth noting it, okay, to your clients or your readers. We really have to be transparent about this stuff because otherwise you can get tripped up very, very easily. The other nail in the coffin, sugar makes us fat. On this, the science is definitely in. The links between sugar and obesity are as sound as they get. Now, just take a look at this graph. Correlation is not causation, I say this often, but now there is enough data to make this direct connection. It's not just about calories from sugar, of course, and in fact, this is almost the least of the issues. It's the appetite and hormone havoc that's the real worry. So sugar very much makes us sick as well. There's very sturdy science that has confirmed the links between excessive consumption of sugar and a whole bunch of, of modern diseases. And by excessive, I mean more than what is recommended by the American Heart Association and the WHO, or the World Health Organization, in their new draft guidelines. How much sugar is that? Well, it's no more than six to nine teaspoons of sugar a day. The list of dire diseases and conditions, many of which some of your clients might be suffering from, include heart disease, cancer, diabetes, tooth decay, accelerated ageing and wrinkles, hypertension, insomnia, dizziness, allergies, hair loss, ADD and ADHD, and most recently, Alzheimer's. Plus, a mile-long list of correlations where the science is not quite in yet, but it's really only a matter of time. I'm asked all kinds of questions about sugar wherever I go, but invariably at some point someone will pipe up, but it's natural. To that I say, so is arsenic and petroleum. You'll no doubt be greeted with the same thing when talking to your clients, and it's good to have a response pretty much like that one. Another question I invariably get asked, and you might find this as well with your clients, I'll be asked, why did we evolve in this way? Surely evolution should have taken care of this issue already. Well, the response that I generally give to, to people in the street or, or to clients is that back in caveman days, we had a really different relationship to sugar. It was extremely rare on the planet. There was very, very little of it. There might have been a few bitter berries here and there, a rare beehive. And we had to climb over mountains or across savannas to get to it, expending a lot of energy. Now, this is the thing. Because it was such a great way to make us fat, it was like an instant form of fat, and because it was so rare to find, we were programmed to binge on it and to be obsessed by it and addicted to it so that when we did find it, we would binge on it and eat huge amounts of it and, and not get filled up by it. It made complete sense back in caveman days to have no off switch so we could gorge on it and stockpile the weight. The problem is our DNA has not changed since then. It hasn't changed in 10,000 years. The amount of sugar on the planet, though, certainly has. Just 100 years ago, we ate less than 20 pounds of sugar a year. Now we eat, on average, around about 220 pounds of sugar a year. So sugar's natural, sure. But the thing is, the amount of availability of it is not. Most of the sugar we eat today is hidden. We're meant to eat about six teaspoons of sugar a day, according to the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the American Heart Association. But we're eating, and this is a conservative estimate, around about 23 teaspoons of sugar a day. 
Now, some of the foods you might want to discuss with your clients when you're going through their food diaries that contain a lot of sugar are things like low-fat yogurt or any kind of low-fat dairy. So a small punnet or small carton of low-fat, plain, natural Greek yogurt can often contain around about six teaspoons of sugar. The full-fat version generally won't. So that's a really good one to bear in mind. Savory sauces are another one. So, so things like barbecue sauce and ketchup contain more sugar than chocolate topping. I'm not kidding. Healthy foods like dried fruit and fruit juice are another one to look out for. So a glass of apple juice contains around about 9 to 10 teaspoons of sugar. That's the same as Coke, something that I'm sure many of your clients will be shocked by. Dried fruit is around about you know, 70 or 50 to 70% sugar. That's something to bear in mind as well. So my stance generally, and you might want to adopt the same, is to only ever eat whole fruit. And if you can, opt for low fructose fruits like berries and kiwi fruit and grapefruits, another really good one. So we have a situation where the everyday diet of most of us in the Western world exceeds the safe amount of sugar by four, six, sometimes ten times the amount of sugar a day. Now, the healthy eater that you can see on the screen now, that was me. That was my diet before I quit sugar. And I really thought it was healthy. You know, it contained a whole heap of so-called healthy sugars. But as you kind of will probably agree now, it was highly unnatural. It was way, way too much sugar. So I hope that gives you a good overview of the sugar deal and an insight into why I quit sugar and I now encourage lots of other people to quit sugar as well. If you'd like more information, please feel free to connect with me via the I Quit Sugar community at iquitsugar.com where we share all kinds of information and recipes that I think would be pretty useful to your clients. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Why I quit sugar? It's mostly about the fructose. Fructose freaks out our liver. Fructose fracts with our appetite hormone. Sugar makes us fat. Sugar makes us sick. We interrupt proceedings. Why? This is what's unnatural. A guide to sugar. There's a lot of confusing and conflicting information about how sugar can should factor into the diet. For example, are some types of sugar healthier than others? Should all sugars, including fruits, be avoided? Will eliminating sugar help you lose weight, clear up your acne, or alleviate your sleep troubles? Le read on to learn more about sugar so you can decide how or whether to include it into your eating approach. Sweet basics in their simple form. Sugar are carbohydrates composed of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. There are three main types of sugars, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polysaccharides. Monosaccharides are simple sugars. They include glucose, also known as dextrose, fructose, and galactose. These sugars are the building blocks for more complex carbohydrates and occur naturally in fruits, vegetables, and dairy. These saccharides are made up of two monosaccharides joined together. They include sucrose, glucose, and fructose. Maltose, fructose, and glucose. And lactose, glucose, galactose. These sugars can be found in food like table sugar, beer, and milk. Polysaccharides are made up of a long chain of connecting monosaccharides. 
These are often referred to as complex carbohydrates to a complex carbohydrate and appear in a wide variety of fruits including whole grains, starchy vegetables, and legumes. Sugar and digestion While the process begins in the mouth, the majority of sugar digestion happens in the intestine. When you eat a monosaccharide, your body can use it for energy almost immediately by absorbing it into your bloodstream. When you eat a disaccharide or polysaccharide, which are more complex, your body must break down them into monosaccharides before using them for energy. Once in the bloodstream, glucose can either be used immediately or stored in the body for later. If stored, the liver combines glucose molecules creating a larger structure that can be broken down easily when energy is needed. If the liver already have enough stored energy, the sugar gets converted to fat for long-term storage. Blood sugar is sugar carried into the cells in the bloodstream for energy. Blood sugar levels rise after consuming meals with carbohydrates, especially for those full of simple sugars which are digested and absorbed quickly. Blood sugar's level, sugar level also rise during times of stress or illness. They dip during times of rest, following exercises and when meals are skipped. The body works continuously to adjust and regulate blood sugar levels through hormone signaling. These levels are regulated by two primary hormones, which is insulin and glucagon. When blood sugar levels are too high, known as hyperglycemia, insulin is secreted by the pancreas to help clear sugar from the blood and move it to cell where it can be stored. When blood sugar levels, levels are too low, known as hypoglycemia, glucagon is secreted to break down stored sugar and elevate blood sugar levels. Continually elevated blood sugar levels may contribute to weight gain, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. It can also damage a variety of blood organs and systems. Glucose level, hypoglycemia, normal, hyperglycemia. Sugar and health. Humans are bio, biologically programmed to seek out sugar. Sweet flavors tells the body that something is safe to eat. While bitterness signals poisons, sugar breaks down into glucose and fructose, which can be stored as fat four times when food is scarce. Our prehistoric ancestors face famine and food shortages, so they consume high quantities of carbohydrates, rich foods whenever they could. People who ate more sugar were likely more to survive and pass on their genes. In other words, storing sugar as fat is an evolutionary survival mechanism. In total, in today's world, Sugar is abundantly available from any sources. However, we are still programmed to seek it out, which means that many of us eat more than we need to survive and strive. For example, 
American consume an average of 126 grams of sugar, which is about 30 teaspoons each day, which is more than twice the daily recommendation from the World Health Organization. Other countries with high sugar consumption include Germany, the Netherlands, and the Ireland. Countries with the lowest sugar consumption include India, Israel, Indonesia, and China, which all average less than 16 grams of daily sugar intake. Repeated excessive sugar intake can affect health in many ways, including increased likelihood of memory deficit and risk of Alzheimer's disease, increased blood pressure and triglycerides which may cause cardiovascular disease, increased likelihood of dental caries, increased risk of asthma, distorting the hunger and safety hormones causing overeating and increased risk of obesity, potential insulin resistance and possibly higher risk of type 2 type 2 diabetes, disrupting the gut microbiome and negativity impairing immunity, promoting inflammation, the underlying cause of many chronic diseases, replacing nutrient-dense calories possibly leading to vitamin deficiencies even if caloric needs are being met or exceeded. While some sugar in the diet helps our bodies move quickly and can help us stay alert too much sugar can spike blood sugar and lead to crushes this spike and crush pattern may contribute to larger health problems including obesity and heart disease natural versus added sugars natural sugars exist in fruits and vegetables and typically increase as they repent though you are consuming sugar you're also consuming vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and fiber, which in particular can help reduce the glucose spike associated with eating sugar. Sugar is sometimes added to foods and beverages during processing. Foods with added sugar tend to be higher in calories and lower in nutritional value, and they don't usually offer the additional vitamins minerals, and fiber that the foods with natural sugars offer. Fiber makes us feel fuller for longer because it's more difficult molecule to digest. Without fiber to signal fullness, foods that contain added sugar are more likely to be consumed in excess. Additionally, these foods are often packed as snacks or desserts, so they are most more likely to be consumed on their own passively leading to a more significant spike in blood glucose level. Foods that may contain sneaky sugar include plant's milk such as almond and coconut, cured milk such as bacon and prosciutto, deli meat such as ham and turkey, kombucha, condiments such as mustard and ketchup, protein powders, salad dressing, sauces such as marinara or barbecue, canned soup, cereals and granola bars, yogurt. Sugar in the wild. When reading ingredients labels on packed foods, you may be surprised to find that sugar isn't always labeled clearly. Some common forms of sugar are listed below so you can be well informed when grocery shopping or 
helping clients who want to minimize sugar intake. Sugars, brown sugar, cane sugar, confectioner sugars, or raw sugars. Syrup, cane syrup, date syrup, high fructose corn syrup, malt syrup, rice syrup. Oxes, de dextrose, fructose, galactose, glucose, lactose, maltose, ribose, saccharose, sucrose. AIDS, disaccharide, monosaccharide, polysaccharide. Natural sugars, agave, coconut nectar, coconut sugar, date sugar, evaporated cane juice, fruit juice, honey, maple syrup, molasses, monk fruit, rice malt and stevia artificial sweeteners is para is part-time or equal saccharide sweet and low sucrose or splenda sugar alcohols erythritol glycerol sorbitol xylitol some people believe we should consume little to no sugar while others believe our bodies need carbohydrates to perform the millions of daily functions required to sustain life. Some people believe that the source of the sugar doesn't matter because our bodies break down into glucose either way. While others believe that only natural occurring sugar is okay, as with other eating approaches, sugar consumption is bio-individual. Still staying mindful of your intake can be important aspect of preventing inflammation disease. I'm going to chat to you about the autoimmune disease sugar connection, or more specifically how quitting sugar is well non-negotiable if you have an autoimmune disease. But first, a little bit of a background. So why did I quit sugar? Well, mostly because I used to look like this. About six years ago, I got really sick. I developed an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. And for about nine months, I couldn't walk or work. Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease where the body produces antibodies that attack the thyroid gland. Now, of course, the thyroid pretty much controls everything in the body that makes us feel human. And very uniquely, every cell has receptors for the thyroid hormone. The only substance with such control over the body like this is vitamin D. So for me, it affected almost every aspect of my body. My hair fell out, my nails thinned, I put on weight, about 35 pounds, and I got extremely puffy. I developed insulin and cortisol issues, I was hypoglycemic, and I had really high cholesterol, as well as declining bone density. My eyebrows fell out, and I became perimenopausal and I was told I'd never be able to have kids. Also became permanently constipated. I developed anxiety, insomnia, depression, and I had a gut feeling that sugar had something to do with all of this. So when I was thinking about quitting sugar, I realized I just had to try it to see what would happen. And as I explained in previous talks, I thought I'd just give it a go for about two weeks, you know, just to see if it could make a difference. I didn't want to commit too heavily. So to cut a very long story short, after two weeks, I actually did feel better. So I kept going and going and going. Gradually, gradually, I lost the weight and I was able to walk and work again. Miraculously, my period came back and my medication was reduced from the highest dosage down to the lowest dosage and then I cut that in half. My antibodies also went back to absolute normal. But here's another bit of background worth knowing. 
thyroid disease affects around about 50 million Americans. At the same time, we have about 50 million Americans with metabolic disease. Is there a connection? Well, I believe it's sugar, but I'll get to that in a moment. Add to this, insulin resistance, one of the components of metabolic syndrome, affects up to 105 million Americans, which of course leads to heart disease and diabetes. As a health coach, it's very likely that you're going to come across someone with a wonky thyroid or an autoimmune disease or some other kind of inflammatory disease where sugar really does play a role. It's also worth noting that many endocrinologists don't recognise this connection, but science increasingly is. Also, most of your patients or clients will probably come to you after multiple dead ends and they'll be very, very frustrated. For the average Hashimoto sufferer, for instance, often finds it takes five years and an average of five doctors before they can get some help, according to the American Autoimmune Related Disease Association. So what is the connection between thyroid and sugar and what causes thyroid disease? The causes and triggers of Hashimoto's and most autoimmune diseases are extremely convoluted and all kinds of factors have a part to play and it kind of forms this gnarly knotted kind of ball of wool. One thread of course is leaky gut and a lot of people feel that this is the cause of a lot of autoimmune disease. Other factors that make up this gnarly ball of wool are toxic metals, estrogen surges, pathogens, different kinds of viruses and adrenal stress. But what causes leaky gut and what can cause adrenal stress? Low thyroid function and around and around it goes into this increasingly knotted mess. Okay, so where does sugar fit into this picture? Like metabolic syndrome and obesity, both are increasing along with sugar consumption at much the same rate. This graph pretty much captures the picture. I always remind people that correlation isn't causation, but there is definitely a link going on here, especially when it comes to healing which I'll get to in a moment. But there's a couple of things I just want to talk about if we can go back to the causes of autoimmune disease. The first is that sugar mucks up your gut. Blood sugar imbalances caused by high sugar intake inflame the digestive tract, causing leaky gut, literally a perforated gut lining. Plus, sugar can ruin your gut flora and microbiome, which we're now increasingly understanding is the seat of all wellness. Sugar also causes inflammation. In addition, sugar compromises the ability of our white cells to destroy toxins, which leads to inflammation. This effect begins within 30 minutes of eating the stuff and lasts for about five hours. Inflammation in the body compromises most immune function. Sugar also causes hormone imbalances. Now, just to recap, sugar causes our pancreas to secrete insulin to move excess sugar from the blood into our cells. This is kind of a normal process. But if this process is abused, i.e. by eating too much sugar, the cells lose this ability to respond to insulin. The pancreas responds by pumping out even more insulin, leading to insulin resistance. Most of you probably understand this by now. Plus there's this, we're programmed to see low blood sugar as a threat to survival. So our adrenal glands respond by secreting cortisol. Cortisol then tells the liver to increase the amount of glucose available, bringing blood sugar levels back to normal. Again, I reckon you kind of know this, but to recap, cortisol is the flight or fight hormone reserved for special occasions like being chased by a tiger or some such. It 
causes an increase in heart rate, oxygen and blood flow while shutting down digestion, growth and reproduction so that all the energy can go to our brains and our muscles. Now, over time, too much cortisol stimulated by chronic low blood sugar levels weakens your adrenal glands to the point where they produce lower levels of sex hormones. This can then lead to hormone imbalance that impacts fertility. Plus, it gets worse. These insulin surges also increase the destruction of the thyroid gland. If cortisol is overused and abused from eating sugar daily, this all suppresses the pituitary function, um, which is vital to thyroid function. And just to remind you, the hypothalamus, the thyroid and the pituitary work as a bit of a threesome. So around and around we go, getting more and more knotted all the time. And just to flag, people with Hashimoto's and autoimmune disease invariably have other metabolic or insulin-related illnesses, mm -hmm. such as diabetes and obesity. So for me, when I first got Hashimoto's, I was also pre-diabetic. I had serious cholesterol issues as well as heart problems. So just to tighten things even further, not only does sugar feed the known contributors to thyroid disease, and not only does it lead to the destruction of the thyroid gland itself, low thyroid function can also cause blood sugar issues in the first place. It's that convoluted. So put another way, our thyroid function depends on blood sugar being kept in a normal range. And keeping our blood sugar in a normal range depends on healthy thyroid function. Low thyroid function slows down the way we process sugar in our cells and in our guts. It also slows down the insulin response and the clearance of insulin from the body. So what does this mean? And what does this mean for your clients? Well, your client might have normal levels of glucose in their blood, but because they're slow to respond to it and to absorb it, they can very easily get hypoglycemic and thus they'll clutch at sugar. So know this. Anyone with thyroid issues has a much, much harder time with sugar than the rest of the planet. But if you're serious about managing your autoimmune disease, and it's always about managing rather than fixing, and having the best shot of addressing any or all of the purported causes, quitting sugar is a great start. Quitting sugar will see you start to loosen that knotted ball of wool. So your gut will heal a bit, your adrenals will back off a bit, and on and on it rolls which is kind of where I'm at. I'm always loosening that ball of wool. And it's really important that you share this with your clients. Now, for one last hormone-related question that I often get asked, what is the sugar link to PCOS? I get a lot of feedback on this issue and no one really knows the original cause, but there is a correlation with obesity and insulin issues. And addressing both is the best way to heal and modulate PCOS and of course to become pregnant. Most women who cut sugar from their diet will actually notice substantial changes and in some instances total recovery from endometriosis for instance. Most of us are eating kind of snacky sugary foods you know that's six times a day. That's like throwing kind of kerosene or kindling on the fire but when you're eating solid foods like protein and fat it puts a log on the fire and it allows your whole metabolic and kind of hormone system to regulate itself and burn at an even rate. I'll just finish by adding one warning. A lot of people are trying the low-carb diet at the moment. Now, this is something that you probably should know. Low-carb diets trigger the conversion of T4 to reverse T3, which can create thyroid symptoms. Some say this is like an evolutionary response. When carbs disappear, it means that it's time to hibernate, to pack on the weight and get slow for winter. To show them that it's about taming and modulating the thyroid and getting the ship nice and steady. It's about loosening that knotted ball of wool and dealing with your gut 
gut and inflammation issues. Sugar, of course, gets in the way of all of this. So I've covered off previously why you might want to encourage your client to quit sugar. I will now give you some pointers on how to try it for yourself and then guide your clients to do the same. Increasingly, science is showing a correlation, if not a causal relationship, between sugar and most metabolic diseases. It's showing that there's also a really strong link between quitting sugar and achieving effective weight management, as well as, I guess, mindful eating. At a bare minimum, eating sugar prevents healing. It mucks with the gut. It mucks with our hormones. It's also a big cause of inflammation, which is the heart of most illness today. My bet is that most of your clients have a blood sugar issue. And I should highlight that this program is not for fructose malabsorption issues. That's a different issue entirely. So I will kick off with some of the fundamentals that can better paint the picture for you. So the first point, quitting sugar effectively means quitting processed food. 80 to 90% of processed food contains added sugar. So when you cut sugar, you cut out junk food, which leaves you with real food, which of course you need to be able to cook. So when I'm asked the most effective wellness trick that I know, I tell people it's to learn to cook. Look, cooking is non-negotiable. I really encourage that you drum this into your clients. I also find from a communication point of view, it's a really accessible and digestible message, especially for anyone a bit resistant to the idea of quitting sugar. There's also this. When you quit sugar, you go back to the way our grandparents or great-grandparents used to eat. Before the advent of sort of, you know, sugar in all of our foods and before the onslaught of all these modern metabolic diseases. And I find that that little soundbite also helps people kind of get it. Humans just don't like being told what not to do. So when you see a wet paint sign, don't touch, all you want to do is touch that wet paint. It's just the way we are. So instead, I encourage people to treat it as a curious experiment. The best thing about quitting sugar is that it only actually takes two weeks for your skin to change, for you to notice a real difference in the way your skin looks and for your taste buds to change. So within two weeks, you get some really discernible changes and uh, it can help you to keep going and going. Again, this is a really good thing to flag with your clients. If you can just get through two weeks, you'll start to see a really, really big difference. And also that taste for sugar will start to shift. Also, allow eight weeks. When I researched the eight-week program, I found that addiction studies found that you really required around about 21 days to get over an addiction. But then there were other studies that showed that 60 days is what you needed. And this longer period allowed for slipping off the wagon. This approach allows also the building of a muscle at a physical and habitual and emotional level. So I found that eight weeks or 60 days was a much better way of going about things because it allowed for you know shifts and changes and, and slipping off the wagon. So there are clear stages that you go through when you quit sugar. At the two-week mark, your taste buds and your skin start to change, as I mentioned before. At the four-week mark, you go through a detox process and at six weeks, we start to ease out. And just one thing to remember is that the whole point of this is to recalibrate your appetite. So at six weeks, you start to find that your appetite mechanisms start to change and you experience true hunger and true satiation. And that's really important um, in the process of quitting sugar. As I mentioned in the previous talk, the main issue with sugar or fructose is that it mucks with your appetite mechanism. So you lose your ability to know when you're full and it also causes us to binge and, and to eat far more than we need to. 
So as a result of a sugary diet, we've lost the idea of true hunger and fullness. And so the big aim when you're quitting sugar is to get us all back to a natural appetite so that your body can tell you how much you need to eat. And this is really key to weight management and also to emotional wellness in general. I like to call it food freedom. It's this idea of not being a prisoner to sort of food messaging and addictions and, and kind of habitual ways of going about things. Again, this is something that um, it's really worth educating your clients about because they respond to this kind of messaging really, really well, this, this notion of food freedom. So yes, in this whole process, uh, we stop eating fruit for about six weeks of the program. Um, we take all sweetener out and that does include the safe sweetener, such as whole fruit. And I'll talk through the safe sweeteners in a moment. Now, I'm a big fan of whole fruit, and I encourage that once you've done the detox, you eat around about one to two pieces of fruit every day, which is in keeping with most international nutritional guidelines. But one thing I'll really encourage is that you don't drink fruit juice ever again. I think you probably know by now there is just as much sugar in a glass of apple juice as there is in a glass of Coke. So on the eight-week program, everyone is shown how to work out for themselves how much sugar their body needs. It's all about getting to know your appetite and to understand your own notion of food freedom. Possibly the most controversial aspect of quitting sugar and of my eight-week program is the notion of getting people to eat fat. Yep, fat. There's a number of reasons for this. So vitamins A, E, K and D, which are the essential vitamins in our fruit and vegetables, uh, these are the vitamins that we've got to get from food, are only absorbed in the presence of fat. They're fat-soluble only. So we really encourage people to add fat to their bowl of vegetables or to their salad via some salad dressing and so on. The same applies to protein. Protein is absorbed in the presence of fat. So we encourage to eat the chicken skin on your chicken breast, for instance. One of the biggest things I find for people who are struggling with the detox process or with quitting sugar in general is that they aren't upping their fat content enough. It's this fat that actually helps them be able to deal with true satiation and appetite control. It is so, so important to embrace fat. I did a lot of research into this and I'm regularly updating myself on the science on what are in fact the safest sweeteners around. So what I find is a good sweetener, a good safe sweetener to use is stevia, which is a plant very similar to mint and about 35,000 studies have been done on stevia to ensure its safety um, for humans. Rice malt syrup is another great one. It's essentially fermented brown rice and can be used in the same way as honey. In the okay front, we're talking about xylitol and urethritol. Now, I should point out that most sugar alcohols are a bit of an issue because we can't digest them. However, these two have been shown to be quite digestible by the human body. The best option is to use real food to sweeten your recipes. So things like coconut milk, coconut flesh, coconut oil, summer squash, sweet potato, which is one of my favourites, cinnamon, and of course, whole fruit, not fruit juice, of course. All my recipes now contain no more than half a teaspoon of added sweetener and I instead use these whole foods to sweeten most of my recipes. It's also really important to learn how to read a food label. So to find out how many teaspoons of sugar are in a serving, it works probably best for most people to divide the number of grams of sugar by four and that will tell you how many teaspoons you're about to eat. Also I encourage people to check the serving size. So is it half the box? Is it the full box? And do you tend to eat the full box even if a serving size is only half? If so, then double the amount. 
It's also really handy to calculate the percentage of sugar. So find out how much sugar there is in 100 grams and that will give you the percentage. Sometimes it's very shocking to see that something is 50% sugar. The first is to avoid all fruit juice and sweetened beverages. So that means soda, fruit juice, as I say, sports drinks, vitamin drinks. The reason for this is that they tend to contain huge, huge amounts of sugar. So a glass of apple juice, about six to nine teaspoons of sugar, which is your full quota for the day. The other thing, of course, is that these large amounts of sugar are consumed particularly fast, which is a huge and fast dumping of sugar on the liver, which of course gets confused and stores that sugar as instant fat. The reason for this is that when the dairy manufacturers take the fat out of their products, they put sugar back in to make up for the loss of flavour and texture. So the irony is, is that the low-fat version ends up being more fattening than the full-fat version. Avoid all sauces, especially at restaurants, because generally a sauce will contain huge amounts of sugar. If you can't see what's in a sauce, don't eat it. The other big tip is to eat a savoury breakfast. Breakfasts generally contain a lot of sugar, but the other thing is, is if you can set yourself up in a savoury kind of frame of mind at the beginning of the day, you can actually avoid those sort of blood sugar highs and lows that keep you addicted to sugar throughout the day. A lot of people who are quitting sugar also want to know whether they should be quitting carbs at the same time. Should they be going paleo? Should they be doing a juice cleanse at the same time? I guess the big thing I try to tell people is to do one thing at a time. Now, this is the, the big thing about quitting sugar is that when you take sugar out, you actually find you're in a position to listen to your body and you can work out what your body needs. And that might entail cutting out carbs later down the track. Um, my personal opinion on carbs is that they're not all evil. Instead, I take the approach that I try to go for the most nutrient-dense option at any given time. And I try to avoid processed carbs, which can contain high amounts of gluten and phytic acid and so on. That's my main focus. Um, on the juice detox front, well, I'm not a big fan. Generally, it's because they contain huge amounts of sugar. And when you take the fibre out, when you juice something, that's pretty much what you're left with. And as I've mentioned before, most juice contains about six to nine teaspoons of, of added sugar in the glass. Instead, you might want to try a smoothie instead. Um, smoothies are about pureeing the whole fruit. So it keeps the fibre in the food, which slows down the sugar dump. It also means that you can add things like protein and fat so that you you're actually properly absorbing these vegetables. The other tip I'd like to share is to remind you that your clients while they're quitting sugar will need real-time support. In a similar way, as a health coach, you probably need to be doing the same thing and checking in with them and making sure that all their questions are answered along the way. And the final bit of advice I'd like to share with you is this. Be your message and, and show, don't tell. Now, let me give you the five lists that I always use with the people I take care of. This is my big five list, because I know you won't remember anything more than five things in general if you're in a tense environment talking to me in my office. The five issues that drives at least 70% of your aging process and how good you feel about life. Number one, blood pressure. I'll come back to all these, by the way. Blood pressure. And it needs to be not average. The average blood pressure in America is 130 over 80. That seems pretty good, but what's, what happens to the average American? They die of heart disease. You can't afford to be average. Optimal blood pressure, 115 over 75. And you don't want to get there with meds. You want to get through through lifestyle. Second big issue, exercise, about 30 minutes a day. Doesn't have to be triathlete type working. I'm talking about breaking a sweat. 
a couple times a week. Walk a little faster than you normally would to get a little breathy as you do it. The kinds of activity that Dan Buettner has written about in the Blue Zones, where people live in Costa Rica, Sardinia, Okinawa, four times longer to age 100 or more to age 100 than we currently do. What do they do differently? Daily rigorous activity. They don't go work out. They just live lives and they're moving around a little bit. A healthy diet that's easy to love. Stop telling people what foods are good for them. Tell, food, tell them what foods they will love that happen to be good for them. And they will eat them. Fourth is stress control tools, and in particular ones that help you with sleep. Because sleep is the single biggest underappreciated problem in America. If you do nothing else but help people sleep better, you're going to be a very successful practitioner. And number five, you want to curtail addictions. Addictions come in all shapes and all sizes. And addiction is a wonderful example of how smart people can mess themselves up, but how you can insert yourself perfectly to make a difference. Because it's all about how you approach the problems. Let's go through these lists of five things. First off, blood pressure. Look at Rosie O'Donnell's heart. Rosie, as you know, came on the show because she had a heart problem. She actually had a heart attack. Here's what happened. There's the big vessel in the front of the heart, and that blood vessel has arteries uh, and blood vessels coursing through it. Now, when your time happens and you build a plaque in there, that's not the problem. The problem is when that plaque begins to crack and ultimately ruptures right there. Once you have an open sore inside the body, you've got to form a scab over it. When you put that scab on there, suddenly, boom! You close off. And when you close off, it's like someone is literally giving your heart a charley horse. You punch the heart there. You bruise and kill that area because it's being starved of blood. And what you're witnessing here, the number one cause of death in this country. In fact, in the entire Western world. Now, it wasn't the plaque. wasn't the plaque that would kill. It's the rupturing of the plaque. Please get that straight. When people ask you, does it get better? Does the plaque go away? They're actually two different questions. The plaque won't go away usually, but the importance of the plaque can go away. Well, my colleague Dean Orders did the original studies on this and it's been replicated. He never showed that plaque went away. He showed that angina went away. Heart complaints went away. Because if the artery is there and instead of spasming down because you're having a fatty meal with saturated fats, it dilates up and opens, all of a sudden what used to be an important blockage doesn't become important. Or if it doesn't rupture and form a scab, they suddenly close off the blood vessel, you never have a heart attack. There are people dying at age 85 every day who have blockages that are not life-threatening. They just happen to be there. And we know those blockages start when you're 18, 20 years of age. In the Korean War, they did autopsies on young GIs who had died. And they found those for the first time. You know, corn-fed Iowa kids who looked healthy as bulls already had plaque. I'm not going to fight plaque. I'm going to fight the rupture. But let's talk about how plaque develops. If I were to punch a hole in the wall back there, I'd have to fix the hole. How do I fix a hole in a, in a wall? I use plaster. What's the body's plaster? It's called cholesterol. You can put high-quality cholesterol in there, and that makes a nice, smooth covering that no one can tell was messed up. Or you put cheap spackling in there, and that cheap spackling crumbles out, and that leaves you that raw surface that caused a clot in that animation. So the cholesterol does matter. But is it that important? Well, it turns out it's not that important because if there's no hole, you don't need plaster. What makes the holes in the arteries? Three things. Number one by far, blood pressure, which is why blood pressure dwarfs cholesterol in importance. Notice I didn't put cholesterol on my list. It's really not that important. Total cholesterol, by the way, irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's high-quality cholesterol, low-quality cholesterol, how it's carried, and even that's not that important compared to blood pressure. Second big thing that causes problems is diabetes. It literally scrapes off the delicate lining of the arteries, which is why Jared, my 37-year-old diabetic, 
you know, was, 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 a, was walking time bomb unless you get to them in time. And then the third thing is cigarettes. Let's talk about cigarettes. Let's go to addiction. When I see someone who's smoking, and this happened actually two days ago, three days ago on Thursday, I saw a wonderful woman, she needs a surgery, and she sort of looked at her feet as she walked in, and I could tell she was embarrassed about something, and she said, I gotta confide something in you. I said, what's wrong? She says, I smoke. Well, I said, I could smell the smoke as you walked in. So, everybody can. So, there's no, shame is not part of the equation here. And she said, but I know you don't operate on smokers. And I said, I don't. And it's not because I'm trying to be mean to you. I don't operate on smokers because my one chance to get you to stop is before I operate. Because the scalpel blade is a very motivating force. And so I said, I'll do everything with you. I know what seems to work. Nothing's perfect. The odds are it will fail the first couple times. But if you try and I'll be patient with you, we'll make this happen. So many times people addictions, cigarettes, food addictions, work addiction, whatever it might be. When you finger wag at somebody and tell them that cigarettes are bad for them, well, they know that. And now they just feel worse that they can't control themselves. So to relax, what do they do? They have a cigarette. That's what happens. Or they tell themselves stories that defend it because they can't deal with the reality that they're feeling. So I'd rather just show them how sacred, how cool the body is. The big problem with smoking is not lung cancer. That happens in five to 7% of people. The big problem is emphysema, which happens to more than a third. So instead of beating yourself up, take an approach that faces reality, that, that appreciates how, how cool you are, how sacred you are, and then deal with it accordingly when you realize you are loved by people who desperately want you to stop because they want to spend time with you. That works for addictive mentalities. We all have our demons. We all have things that we're embarrassed about and ashamed about. And guilt and shame, of course, is you know, guilt they're going to find out, shame they already know. They're both devastating emotions. And uh, they left for the if only scenario, or the two most dangerous words in the English language, if only. Uh, and yet, instead of moving forward, you start to perseverate on those things. And we see, and it's painful, but you, you experience it day in and day out. All of you are already seeing it. But you will see these scenarios frequently, and people desperately need your help. I want you to come to their aid. So how do I drive this point home? I'm going to drive it home with perhaps the biggest addiction of them all which is obesity. And this is important for you because this explains why what you're doing is so valuable, not just emotionally, but monetarily. Truncal obesity, belly fat, drives the healthcare budget, representing at least a third, probably closer to half of all the expenses that we incur. You can imagine that that number 18.6 is probably wrong. It's gonna have to move up, bend upwards towards the 24% curve. Now, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, it frankly doesn't matter. No healthcare program is sustainable with those kinds of expenses. And if you fix this problem of belly fat or truncal obesity, they're all sustainable. The old one, the new one, everything works. So it's up to us. It really is to make a dent in this. And we were starting. Childhood obesity for the first time is leveling off. You know, kids are seen as Achilles tendon, but I'm gonna come back to them. They are absolutely the activists. They can be the strength. They always are the future, right? The challenge is for us to get them to recognize that. So I've written a bunch on this topic, and notice the subtitle here, the owner's manual for waste management. Waste management. Now, why did I pick that? First off, waste, not weight, drives health issues. It doesn't matter. If you have fat thighs, you'll lose a couple dates, but you're not going to lose years off your life. What costs you life is belly fat, and the ideal waist size is your height divided by two. Your height divided by two. This is sort of nice because women are very shy about knowing their weights and they certainly don't want you walking into their room and barking out so everyone can hear what they weigh. Then the main reason middle-aged women do not go to a doctor is they don't want to be ashamed about their weight. 
I actually dressed up like a 450-pound person this year and went to a couple of different places around the city and in New Jersey, and I would sit down next to women. I had these CIA operatives, literally, with cameras all over the place, and I would just capture these conversations, and I'd feed my burger, and I'd say, this is good. And the woman next to me would say, yeah, I love it. My doctor gets so mad when I eat these. I don't like him anywhere. And they start eating. They're, they're fierce. And I asked them about when the last time they saw a doctor. They say the same thing almost every time. It's been years. Why don't you go back? Because he always weighs me. Then they bark it out. They won't can hear it. I don't. Why? I don't. I just don't like the way I feel when I'm there. I told everyone, stop getting weighed. Just get your waist size. It also works for kids, which is important, and men. But the kids is a big deal because you don't want to talk to young women about their weight because it creates eating disorders. Waist is a very safe way to go, but remember the formula. So let's do a number. I'm 6'1". 6 times 12 inches, 12 inches in a foot, is 72 inches, plus 1 inch, 73 inches. Divided in half, 36 and a half inches. If my waist size is more than 36 and a half inches, then I'm going to start having health problems. I might want to be 33 inches. I might want to look like Adonis, but that doesn't matter. The health issues don't start till later. But you actually got to get a measuring tape and measure people because people don't always tell you the truth. And men are the worst, actually. What do men do? After age 40, they never buy a new belt size. They just slip it down like this. Right? right? They got a you know, 32-inch waist, they think, because their belt is 32, because it's always been there. But this big ponderous belly gets forgotten. Now, why do I perseverate on this stuff? Because it's all about, oh, man, that yellow pad there is the mental fat pad. Let's get rid of that. There's the liver up there, the gallbladder. You guys have had breakfast, I hope. The food in your stomach by now is already moving into your small intestine. When it gets to the small intestine, it's got to get washed. What washes the food? All the enzymes, but also bile. Bile comes down from the bile duct, mixes with the food. As you wash the food, you emulsify, but also you turn into absorbable substances. The bacteria helps with this. Through the portal vein, the, the door vein, up to the liver. If your food is good for you, your liver loves it. It turns it into all the hormones and nutrients that you need. But if the food's not good for you, the liver turns to foie gras. It turns to fat. 25% of the people we're going to be taken care of have that. That omental fat pad starts to stretch ponderously across the belly, and as it gets larger and larger and larger, it comes alive. It literally begins to create its own hormones. Hormones like adiponectin, you know, and, 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 and dramatic influences on insulin. It starts to make estrogen. It creates hormones, and there's an important reason for that. Historically, that omental fat pad was used in periods of chronic stress. Now, of course, historically, there were no office appointments and, you know, spreadsheets. Chronic stress was one thing. Famine, not enough food. That fat pad exists precisely to save our lives when we didn't have enough food. Now, to go hunting, you have to, you know, work for days. Today, to go hunting, inside the milk carton out of the way. And so we've dramatically shifted the role of the omentum. And instead of being a life-saving uh, uh, tool for us, it's now become this hindrance. That's why men, when they put belly fat on, get man boobs because testosterone is converted into fat to estrogen. They also lose libido and they lose muscle mass, so they get fatter. Likewise, women, when they go through menopause, the ovaries stop making not just estrogen but testosterone. Without testosterone, there's no way to maintain muscle mass and they got a lot of fat on board. Whatever little testosterone they make, they convert to estrogen and they have the same problem as men. Except in women, when you get extra estrogen, guess what happens? You start getting breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, a lot of cancers, frankly. And so these issues have become emblematic and problematic. So now I'm describing to you 
and things that cause heart disease and cancer and lots of other problems, including hormonal issues that change the way you feel about life and include autoimmune ailments. And it's all related back to one simple reality that the mental fat pads are enemy. So conventional diets, do they work? We know the answer to that. They don't. And there's a bunch of reasons and more and more data about this. But when we tell people to go on a diet, which is what I as a doctor tell most of my patients, it doesn't work. And we think in medicine it doesn't work because they're not trying hard enough. We now know more and more that's not the case. First of all, how many of you can hold your breath indefinitely underwater? Let me see your hands. What? I mean, what kind of question is that, right? But there's a dozen redundant systems that force us to breathe underwater. Guess what? There are a dozen redundant systems that force us to eat too. It is impossible, impossible to, to use willpower to overcome uh, uh, the biology of blubber. What works is nudging the biology of blubber, finding out ways that to push it and shove it in the right direction. Likewise, you can hold your breath 17 minutes underwater. 17, one seven minutes. But you gotta game it. You gotta pre-breathe a little bit, you gotta practice. There are things you can do to go from 30 seconds to a minute to 17 minutes. The same thing works for weight loss. You can manipulate the biology of of blubber, but only if you know how to do it. So how do you do it? Well, I talk on the show oftentimes about things that are sort of quick fixes. Green coffee and extract is an example. It actually does work. There have been several clinical trials on it. We've done our own on it. I'm confident in it. But unfortunately, most of the stuff that's sold is fake. And I know that because they use my name. We now have something called Ozwatch. And again, I, said, I mentioned earlier, I don't sell anything. So if my name is next to a product being sold on the web, guess what? They're lying about it, which means they're pretty good chance they're lying about what's in it as well. I busted a really big group in San Diego. These folks had 10% of the active ingredient in the product. So, of course, people take the pills and it doesn't work, and then they don't know what to do because they blame themselves or me, but not the guys who stole from them. And then they have the credit card fraud that goes along with it, lots of bad stuff. So I'm okay with these quick fixes, and they do work. They're designed, again, for quick fixes. They work for three months. You can lose 12 pounds with you know, green coffee and extract or Cambodia or a bunch of other things that I, that I like that actually make a difference. But they're only crutches to get you where you need to go. The long-term solution has to do with foods and beverages. Coffee works. It really does. It's been done in you know, different settings. It's actually coffee's number one source of antioxidants in America. Number one. Now, I don't drink coffee. As a surgeon, it's bad for a couple reasons. You know, it makes your hands shake, which is bad for the patient. And you have to go to the bathroom, which is really uncomfortable in the operating room. Uh, but uh, coffee does, see, not the cream and sugar, but the coffee itself is valuable. I prefer, personally prefer green tea. It's young tea. There's only about a quarter of the caffeine, but it has all the, because it's young and it hasn't been oxidized, it has all the phytonutrients in it, the ECGC, et cetera, that seem to stimulate metabolism. Uh, but without the caffeine, you can actually drink more of it, and you don't normally add cream to green tea. So it's a smart way of allowing you to get what you're supposed to get, and culturally, it, it comes to you in the right way. Um, hot sauce works. Hot sauces have been shown to reduce cravings for carbohydrates. They increase metabolism a little bit, and they reduce the appetite at the next meal. So, again, it makes sense. Uh, I love nuts. I never leave home without nuts in my pocket. You shouldn't either. It should be around you, near you. They're rich. Listen, these are going to give rise to trees. They have all the nutrients that you need. I'm not talking about peanuts, by the way, which are legumes. Tree nuts up above ground. But all these nuts, and 5% of the population, 5% of the population eats tree nuts other than the baked goods they come in. I'm not counting a little sprinkling on, you know, donut bread. Uh, you know, they, so it's a very small part of what our population currently is eating. And it's one of those simple little ideas. 
And then there's this big issue. You know, we always thought that overeating caused fat. It turns out that there's more and more evidence that you gain fat and that causes you to overeat, which people who are overweight keep saying is what's happening to them. And I think they're right. All calories are not equal. And what they find in these studies, you know, they, 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 you always, I'm sure this was presented to you many different ways. But when you do a clinical trial, every weight loss approach, every diet works. Low fat, low carb, low protein. I mean, everyone, paleo, South Beach, they all work, right? And then they all fail because they're all difficult to do. So the question isn't what will work for you because we can do anything for a couple weeks or months, but what's going to work for you forever? And when people are on low-carbohydrate diets, they consume a lot more calories than when they're on low-fat diets. Now, why is that? It's all about insulin. If you have a lot of insulin in your body, which is what happens when you have a carbohydrate meal, it shoves the calories into your fat cells. So you don't get them. So you get hungry. So you want to eat more. As opposed to letting you burn them off and use them, which is what happens when you get your calories from non-carbohydrate, non-simple carbohydrate sources. Which is why this makes a lot of sense for you to keep in the back of your mind. These kinds of little tools make it easy for people, like I said earlier, to do the right thing. This does not. Because when you have a cola, I don't care what anyone says, you will eat at that the meal where you have the can of cola, which is, let's say, 160 calories, you'll eat an extra 125 calories. Because it stimulates insulin which again shoves the calories into the fat cells so you don't get them. How about diet sodas? How many of you have seen the clinical trials on diet sodas? Never had one published. <laughs> Never had once. If there had been a clinical trial showing the benefit of diet sodas losing weight, you would know about it, trust me. Never worked. It's like when they call it something a university hospital, but there's no university there. It's just a name. They add the name university to the hospital. Uh, there are many examples of this. I won't embarrass the institutions, but they just say, well, you know what? We're a small little community hospital. Add university at the end, and we'll, they'll think we're big. Well, Stanford Diet Soda, it's a marketing tool. Diet Soda, because they have materials in them that are two, 300 times sweeter than sugar, give you a sweet taste, but your brain very smartly says, I don't care about that. I want nutrients. And so you don't give me the nutrients, so I'm going to make you go eat again. You're going to keep eating until you get nutrients. And since there are no nutrients in diet sodas, they just eat more, a lot more. It reminds you to keep eating. And then there's the microtome of the body. The microbiome is where all the action is, I think. First of all, we have 10 times more bacteria in our gut than cells in our body. Think about that, 10 times more. Now, why would that be? It's because we couldn't digest and adjust for digestion fast enough for the environment. So guess what? We outsource digestion to bacteria. Bacteria shift very rapidly to the environment. We eat differently, they move immediately. We get this tennis court sized war zone in our gut and the bacteria can do it there and they mirror the outside world. So I think, and I'm not alone, these actually provide a rational, sort of a unified theory, like in physics you have a unified theory, a unified theory for chronic disease. I think you can tie back leaky gut, obviously, autoimmune diseases and allergies. All the people who never had allergies before, now they have them. Kids who have allergies, when the parents didn't, it starts to think, well, maybe it's about the microbiome. It could have moved that fast. Asthma, how many people have, I can't, countless numbers, have had asthma, but you change the bacterial flora, in the gut, you stop having a civil war in the intestinal system, all of a sudden a little bit of pollen doesn't bother you so much. And the same might go for obesity. New experiments showing you take bacteria from thin mice, you put them in fat mice, you give them the same amount of food, guess what happens? They lose weight. Because the flora is clearly different between thin people and fat people. It won't explain all obesity, but for some people it's going to be an opportunity. Diabetes, heart disease, in fact, even something like H. pylori, which you all know causes ulcer disease, Turns out it also reduces reflux and ghrelin.
grow as the hormone that makes your stomach growl and remind you that you're hungry. These are huge opportunities for us if we know about these things. How do you deal with it? Well, probiotics, which I'm not going to talk about now, but there's, you know, I can give a whole hour talk on it. And then you've got to feed the gut. You've got to feed the, pro- the bacteria. You want prebiotics, resistant starch, like bananas and beans, soluble fiber, all the root vegetables, insoluble fiber. Those are the whole grains. Even avocados have some. So get the foods that feed the flora the right things, and you're, getting, you're making it easier for your audience to do the right thing as well. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention muscle. I know this is the part people don't like to do, and you don't have to do very much of it. But literally a half hour in a week, that's 10 minutes three times a week, just to make the math easy, <laughs> some work that builds muscle, not big, thick, cumbersome, Hulk-type muscle, but long, lean muscle like women want, is hugely valuable because the muscle becomes a metabolic furnace that burns three to 12 times more calories than fat, especially when it's being used. So you need a little bit of that muscle. But most of us haven't tried to go as hard as you can go forever. We haven't really pushed ourselves there. And that's part of the reason that you're here, to get people and remind them. I'll give you one number, a statistic you should never forget. Because when people come to you and say, well, I'm getting older. Our ancestors were endurance hunters. We would run after the antelope. The antelope would run away. we keep running. The antelope can't sweat. They have to breathe it out. They have to stop. We can sweat through our pores and through our lungs. So we keep running after them for hours. Eventually, two, three hours later, we catch the antelope. It'd be exhausted on its back. We stab it, eat it. But we have to be part of the tribe. We have to be able to endure. Your peak physical fitness, the strongest you'll ever be, age 27. But your endurance at age 17 is the same as age 65. They're the same. You'll see it all the time. Kids saying, oh, geez, Grandpa, he, he, you know, he can run as hard as I can. He's supposed to run as hard as I can. And we have things like the Tarahumana Indians in, in Mexico. They can go 30, 40 miles a day in their 80s. You should be able to go as hard, or rather not as hard, as long at age 65 as age 17. And so should all the people you take care of. So don't let them get away with that excuse. They're not good enough. Let me give you a couple other myths about living. First, it's not a natural part of life. It really isn't. It's a side effect of life. It's not about curing disease. If I get rid of all the cancer, all the cancer in America, we'd live about 2.8 years longer. So getting rid of curing cancer is not the key to longevity. It's being durable enough to take the treatment that will give us the longevity. It's the frailty that kills us. And it's not about preventing damage. We're supposed to take risks. We're supposed to make mistakes. We're supposed to get hurt. It's about recovery. It's about learning how to, re- to deal with that. Good example is bone. Right? Now, there are great medications out there for osteoporosis. Many of them really don't work as effectively as we'd like them to. You take bone that's brittle, you turn it into chalk. It's thicker, but it's not a lot more durable. What does really work strongly and effectively for building a bone is resistance training. And it's not a lot. It's that 30 minutes I talked about earlier. It's a little bit of work like that that prevents the frailty that holds us back. Sleep, number one misunderstood health problem in America, as I mentioned earlier. Why? Because it increases growth hormone. And growth hormone is the vitality hormone. It makes you feel and look sexy and cool and young and hip. You want to have it. I can give you injections of growth hormone. They do work for some people. I just don't think it's a good long-term opportunity, and it's expensive. Whereas sleeping is the opposite. But you've got to learn how to sleep. Most of our clients aren't going to know that. Most of us don't let the lights ever set in our lives. And if you don't have the lights setting, it's like when you go camping, you see the sun go down. And when the sun goes down, you get exhausted. Because when the sun rays get long, they turn on melatonin in the brain, and you get tired. So you have to either use LED lights, which are at, don't have that frequency that turns on the brain, or stop looking at bright screens before you fall asleep at night. Or take melatonin. 
Now, I actually would prefer you do the first things, but if you're going to take melatonin, you can take a pill form, take a very small dose. We give too much, like half a milligram, or take foods that have melatonin, like tart cherry juice. But here's the big secret. Don't take it as you turn the lights out to go to bed. Because guess what? It takes about two hours for food, anything you put in your stomach, to get to your brain. So taking melatonin as you're falling asleep ain't going to work. If you fall asleep, it's the placebo effect. You've got to take it at dinner. Take it two hours ahead of time for it to work. And how about stress? You know, I was coming in and I got cut off in the coming over, coming through the tunnel. I got mad. I mean, it calls for anger when someone cuts you off mercilessly. You know, try to take your spot in line. And you overreact sometimes. But what's the worst thing to tell someone who's angry? Calm down. Does that infuriate you? It doesn't work because anger calls for action. Now, instead of getting mad at that guy for taking my place in line, if I wish he would die, right? That's hostility. That's different. We're supposed to feel like we're a raindrop falling into the ocean of humanity. And if you don't feel that, if you feel isolated and separate, that's what hostility really is. That has been correlated with cardiac problems and cancer and other issues, including stress mismanagement. Whereas anger itself isn't quite as much of a problem as we used to think it was. So I tell folks, vent your anger as long as you don't burn too many bridges. But it's the hostility that becomes the problem. Now, this is how I relax. I take a bottle of wine. You can drink the wine if you want. That works too. But ideally, you with friends drink the wine and then take the cork and save it. I put it in my ashtray in my car. And when I'm driving, I put it in my mouth because it relaxes my masseter muscle. And the TMJ joint is the only joint that purposely disarticulates, purposely dislocates when you use it in order to build up force to chew. And the best thing about this, when you're driving along and people see with the cork in your mouth, they don't bother you. They leave you alone big time. These are big theme ideas. I've covered a lot of material. We've discussed a little bit about the role you need to play or think through in your own life. Uh, We discussed a little bit of the role of this field in medicine, vitally important to provide that layer of protection for the average person, the lay person versus the healthcare system so there's more of interaction. We talked about specific tactics to use for having these conversations. The big thing that often gets left out is the reality that in any program, you have to be able to make a U-turn. When I was driving in again, if I, if I had missed a turn, would my GPS berate me? Would call me a schmuck? No. It said, make an authorized U-turn and get back on the road. What's the big deal? The programs we offer the people who trust us have to be the ones they can bounce back from. They have to be able to get back on track again because it's a marathon they're running, not a wind sprint. Because you come home from work and it's a long day and maybe your loved one didn't say the right things to you. You just feel sort of down. Then, then you see a cheesecake. And you take a knife and you cut yourself. I mean, it's so thin you can see through it. It's sliver. And you sit down, you eat it, and you're just finally beginning to get back again. And then you realize you didn't cut it straight. Cut another slice and one more slice. And pretty much the mama passed that whole thing over here. You put that baby down. And now you took what was a, a little human mistake crutch and you've turned it into a catastrophe. I mean, we've all lived it ourselves, and we've certainly seen it in people that we care about. And so getting back from that and forgiving ourselves from that so we can get back into the program, making that U-turn is vitally important for any program that you offer to people who you're taking care of. Second big thought. The real secret here is automation. Success is forgetting when you're on a program. That's when you know it's working for you. And you've got to give yourself at least two weeks of whatever you try. And here's the deal. If you're still unhappy after two weeks, change. 
But two weeks is important because you really can't get rid of a bad habit. You have to replace a bad habit. So you put a new habit in the place, shove the other one out of the way, and you begin to use your new habits. You're going to have to keep modifying until it makes sense. They did a trial in Israel looking at parole judges. Uh, it wasn't a trial, it was a study. And they looked at the, 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 the number of times these guys gave paroles. And they saw, interestingly, that in the morning, they gave a lot more paroles than in the afternoon. They thought maybe they're locking the dockets up to the, you know, the parole-worthy people in the morning and then the bad guys in the afternoon. It's completely random. And then they realized what was happening. Just like all of us, they get tired making decisions. In the parole world, it takes a lot of energy to give someone parole. That's the proactive step. When you're too tired to make good decisions, you start making no decision or bad decisions, which is what not giving parole really is all about. So if any of you have parole opportunities in the future, go in the morning. But think about your own lives and the people who are going to be asking you for advice. I tell people that want my insights to not make any decisions in the morning. if You can avoid it. You should be able to automate your morning. I'll give you my morning. I get up almost every single day just after 6 a.m., like 6.05. I don't even need an alarm clock. It's the same. Same on the weekends. Then I have a little yoga seven-minute routine I do. Uh, I run off and do uh, – I go either to the studio or to the hospital. By 7 a.m., we either have script meetings or I'm making rounds. And then I'll have about an hour after I get up blueberries and yogurt. You know that Baja yogurt? I love that stuff. It's easy. Put my pot, you know, my bag, I carry it off. Uh, I bring my food with me. I rarely eat the food that's given to me because, first of all, I know how much I'm eating, but also I can control uh, when I can eat it. I have my blueberries and then I go up and do my, you know, rehearsals, let's say, or start operating. And then I have some nuts mid morning as a snack. Nuts that I brought. I soak my nuts. Uh, and I do it not because they're magically powerful. It's like Jack and the Beanstalk. I, I, in Turkey, where my family is from, we always soak our nuts. Uh, and I, it makes sense to do that. The moisture actually makes it taste better. A little bit of the bitterness, the dryness goes away. They soften up. They become chewier. But think about it. These are going to become trees one day. When you put them in soil with moisture on them, they actually begin to germinate. So there might be some benefits as well. It has been said that there are benefits, but I can't prove that or not. But I just like the way they taste. If there are benefits, it's a side issue for me. But I don't make a decision about anything in my life until they bring me lunch. That's it. And even then, I don't decide half the time. The decisions that I make start in the afternoon. For many of the people who are going to be asking you for advice, the bewitching hours, three or four in the afternoon, where your circadian rhythm begins to crater, your cortisol levels start to go down, you've made all the decisions, you know, what to have for breakfast, what, to, where, what fast food place to get it at, uh, juggling the kids' schedules, getting into school, your spouse, whatever, is, all these things have happened. You are so done by, by two or three in the afternoon that every decision is a bad decision, like the parole officers. So think about that. Because that's an important takeaway if you're really going to do it right. And ultimately, your heart has to have a reason to keep beating. And if it doesn't, the things that would allow you to pull yourself up back into the, to the, to the, to the crevice of life fall away and you fall back into the abyss. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients who have just lost their way, frustratingly so. People who literally melt into the bed instead of getting back into life because they didn't have a reason to keep going. And I'm reminded of a story I'm going to share with you of uh, two men who came to visit me. Uh, the first man, uh, they both had the same problem. They both had heart problems. They both needed bypass surgery. The first guy I'm talking to him, I said, well, you know, you need to have bypass surgery when you want to do it. He said, I, I just don't care. Just whenever you have time, do it. I said, well, that's not like the ideal scenario here. You're supposed to want this. You're supposed to be my partner together. It's like a pro-am tournament. You know, that's how we win. He says, I don't care about life. 
do the operation when it suits your calendar. I said, I, I, I don't even know what to say. What, what's the issue here? And he, and he confided in me, actually his wife did, who was next to him, who was at this, moment, at this moment very emotional, that they had a beautiful, lovely 15-year-old kid who had been murdered. And it was a case of mistaken identity at a St. Patty's parade. They parade. When, and he'd lost a son, and he'd lost the, the joy of life, the purpose of life. There's no reason for his heart to keep beating. And I didn't know what to tell him. I don't know what you would tell him. So I said, I, I, let me just put a little hold here. I'm going to ask you to just you know, go home, and I'll call you. But I need to, to, to think this through. I need to meditate on this a little bit. <laughs> so as fate works, another gentleman came in. Need the same operation. And I said, I can do it next week, maybe. Because the sooner the better. Get it over. I got to get going back to life. I said, what makes you so passionate? Why do you feel so comfortable with this? He goes, I have to live. I said, well, everyone wants to live. But what makes you have to live? He said, I have a 15-year-old kid at home who is profoundly developmentally delayed. I have to change his diapers. I have to feed him. I have to do everything for him. And if something happens to me, he'll die. I have to live. So I thought about that. I thought, you just gave me the best argument I could ever give that first father. So I called the first father up and I said, I just met this other gentleman and he's got a kid who's developing and delayed and has all these limitations. A kid that you might actually think would have been an albatross around your neck. But you had 15 years of bliss with your boy. You got to talk to him about what he was going to be when he became a man. How do you pick the right woman? How do you treat her the right way? How do you throw a baseball? How do you fix the carburetor? You got to be his father. The way we think about being a father. And all that was taken away from you. And I can never make up for that. Those 15 years of bliss are something that the second father will never touch in his life. He'll never experience that. So I operated on them both the same week. And they both survived. And the second father's story got the first father through the operation. And I think that's how we begin to find meaning in our life. Because there are many people who come to see me and who will come to see you. Who when you ask them, you should always do this. Who loves you? Who cares about you so that when things are going to be done to you and they go well, they can celebrate with you? And if they tell you nobody, never take that as an answer. Now, I haven't used the word never in this presentation yet. This is the one time I'll say it. Never take that excuse because someone cares for that person. And they'll often have purposely blocked that off. They've purposely gotten rid of the people who really do love them to allow the enablers in their life. There are many stories around how they got to where they are, but do not... Let them do things in life without feeling that one person cares for them. Start off with a pet, a neighbor, anybody, but find someone who cares about them. Thank you. So I'm going to leave you with one thought. It's what keeps my heart beating. We have a group called Health Course, like the Peace Corps. Uh, these young people, uh, they're college graduates, they're just like the Peace Corps, we train them over a summer, and then we put them out in schools around the country instead of putting them in Botswana to build dams. And they act as mentors, big brothers and sisters for kids all over the nation. We touch about 40,000 kids' lives a year. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly large 501c3 foundation now. I'm very proud of it. But I want to just say one thing about what they do. They teach kids how to lose weight. So they deal with childhood obesity. They teach them about physical fitness. So they take pride in who they are. But what they are really about is mental resilience. Now, I'm sharing their story with you because that's what you're really about, too. The people who you're taking care of are coming to you for all kinds of different issues. But what's really going on is they've lost control of their bodies. And what you're offering them is hope. Hope is not the right thing happening. Hope is making sense of what's happened. 
If you can make sense of what's happening in your body, if you understand what's going on deep inside of here, I'm not talking about knowing it up here in your head, in your heart, you really have a visceral understanding, appreciation of why your body's the way it is, you can change the world outside of it. That's what this experience is all about for you. So go get them. Thank you. Isn't it great to have a nutrition school that uh, focuses on primary food? For all the years I uh, initially studied nutrition, I thought this is kind of a dry subject. People were talking about protein and calories and things like that. At a certain point, I noticed that the people who were in nutrition didn't exactly look like the people who I would go out and party with. (laughs) And I was trying to think, like, well, what's the missing ingredient here? And I began to see this whole idea of primary food and the importance of uh, exercise and love and freedom and uh, feeling spiritually alive. And uh, I think that that's the magic we bring into our program and that you bring to your clients. It's part of why we can send you out so quickly into the world to do the counseling. Because you have these kind of magic ingredients that no one else has. And uh, by applying those with people, it's like a paradigm shift. Like you, you know, after, remember, I remember the first time there was, I used my fax machine. And I put the paper in, and it went, and then somehow it got to the other side, and I couldn't figure out how that happened. Do you remember that? I thought, wow, technology is fabulous. But then when I got my AOL account, and I pushed the send button for the first time, do you remember that? And it would go, and then it was gone. And so all of that fascinated me, but after I had an email account, I don't really use fax anymore. It's so old school. It's so like 1990s. And uh, so when I look at nutrition, what the visiting teachers teach and what the general nutrition world does, I, I see that analogy that Yes, that's important, and that's been the state of the art in nutrition, but there are, in my experience, there are ways to sidestep that whole way of thinking that allows people to focus on both their food and their primary food. And the whole food thing gets summarized into, you know, basically eat more fruits and vegetables. I mean, it's basically that's when it's cooked, raw, half raw, half cooked. If you st- anyone who does that with any ailment will start feeling significantly better very quickly. It's that simple. Yes, there's all kinds of other things that go with it, but that is the core. If you add to that that they're going to eliminate or reduce junk. You know, someone interviewed me for L magazine. I don't know if it will go in or not into the magazine because it was like, I think she was like, that's too extreme. But I told her, like, the main reason most diets work is because 
Like any diet would work because they just stop eating what they used to be eating, which is so junky. So it doesn't matter if they go on the vegetable diet or the rice diet or the juicing diet, as long, because they're not eating what they used to be eating, it's going to work. So you combine the fruits and vegetables with the reducing junk, and then you throw in the primary food on top of that. And my friends, whatever ailment a person has, you don't need an encyclopedia, you don't need a prescription for nutritional healing. Those things can help that are in there, the herbs, the supplements, the vitamins and things like that. They can help. But if they don't do the fundamental change from junk to fruits and vegetables and build primary food in their life, then uh, it's by definition superficial. Whatever the symptoms were that caused their ailment will reoccur if they go back. After they do the herbs or the treatments, they go back to the junk and the lack of primary food, they will go back to their earlier. Does that make sense? So I want to make sure you understand that paradigm shift, and it's only because of that we can send you out so early. I mean, it's crazy. There's so many people here that I'm working in a doctor's office now. I'm working in a gym. I've got these contracts. I've got these clients. It could never happen if the operating system that you're using wasn't so well-crafted. There's no way a doctor would trust you with their patients if they didn't have the sense that you know what you're doing. And throw on top of that the crisis that's happening in America. Everyone's dependent. No one thinks how to prevent disease anymore here. It's all about... The, you know, the purple pill and the blue pill and the pink pill. And uh, so Americans don't have a really good connection that they cause their own disease. So I wanted to touch on that with you to help you see perspective where I see it from and how you can then uh, experiment with developing your self-esteem and confidence and working in this field. So what we're going to do today is get your compass of life pointed in the right direction. To do that, I'm going to ask you to pull out a circle of life, follow the instructions. You just want to use this piece of paper and go point by point, spoke by spoke, to notice where your life is in balance and where your life is out of balance. Please take a few minutes and do that now. Again, this is going to be something you can do with your clients. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to practice what you would do in your six-month program, which is to have your client fill this out, and then after they fill this out, you ask them, so, how was it filling this out, and what did you notice? Did you notice in that exercise that it was helpful for you? Yes or no? So you want to see that it will, you are relatively sophisticated to to personal growth and development compared to your clients. And for sure, if this was helpful for you, 
this will be helpful for your clients. Never misjudge the simplicity of the tools that you are given. They look deceptively simple, like connecting the dots. But their power is in their simplicity. It took a long time to figure out how to make it so user-friendly to you and to the client. Today, I'm here to talk to you about coaching through primary food. By this point, you know when your primary food are balanced and satiated, your life feeds you, making what you eat actually secondary. So why is this so important to know as a coach? Well, this means that any issue, big or small, that your client brings to you during a session likely has a root cause that goes beyond their symptoms, diets, or physical ailments. I really like to emphasize this point because it is quite possibly the most valuable awareness to have when you're working with your clients. Imagine you have a client who repeatedly asks you about specific diets to lose weight. Or maybe you have a client who has constant, uncontrollable cravings, and they're not sure how to manage them. These are perfect and very common coaching scenarios that would prompt you to take your client back to the core concept of primary food and guide them to the root cause of these imbalances. The bottom line is that clients are very unlikely to mention that their primary food is out of balance. Instead, they'll probably offer a list of symptoms and issues that you, as the coach, can help them unravel, guiding your client to the aha moments of self-discovery and self-awareness. Here are a few tips and tricks to help you navigate these situations and coach your clients through primary food with greater ease and confidence. One, trust your intuition. When I first started coaching, I would come to my sessions with an agenda and a list of ideas that I wanted to share with my clients, topics that I was sure would heal their life. I would overly prepare in this way because, honestly, I was scared of not knowing what to say. I was really nervous about the unknown, and I was afraid that they wouldn't think I was a credible coach. I was forcing the intangible to be more tangible and trying so hard to make the gray area of intuitive coaching more black and white. As you can imagine, this didn't work out very well. But as I gained more experience, I recognized that my clients would have significantly more aha moments during our sessions when I ignored my agenda and my coaching outline and instead allowed my clients to say whatever was on their minds. Whether my clients knew it or not, their consciousness knew exactly what needed to be said and addressed for the greatest transformation and changes to occur. Long story short, I started trusting the universe and my client's intuition, and I had my own aha moment, realizing that transformation, change, and even what seemed like miracles were inevitable. As long as I created a safe and open space for my clients to openly share whatever was on their mind, transformation would occur. All I had to do was show up, listen, and ask a few high mileage questions. As Joshua says, you are not the sage on the stage. You're the guide on the side. Try to let go of the need for control and instead trust the process and rely more on your intuition. Don't worry. With a little more exposure, practice, and support, you will strengthen your natural intuition and be able to easily coach your clients through primary food in no time at all. Two, embrace the gray. 
I'm sure that some of you listening to this lecture want more structure, more outlines, and more control over this gray area of coaching, just as I did. Trust me, I get it. It feels safe and comfortable when you know what you're going to say. But if you have a calling and a desire to be a health coach, then you don't want to play it safe and stay within your comfort zone. Your clients aren't just coming to you to cut out gluten and look good in a bathing suit. They are craving the empowerment to make the connection between their health goals and their primary food. Three, come back to the circle of life. Use the circle of life tool as a foundation and guide through your six month program. Whether your clients wish to eliminate stress, sleep more deeply, lose weight, feel more energized and vibrant, cure cravings, or get rid of a skin rash, always come back to their circle of life. For instance, let's say that you have a client who typically binge eats in the evenings. This same client often mentions feeling lonely and isolated now that she's divorced. Do you think that the same client would feel inclined to overeat if she had someone to hug her when she walked through her front door every evening? As you and your client come back to her circle of life, she becomes aware that her relationships are imbalanced. She recognizes that she doesn't have cravings during the day because she's surrounded by coworkers. But as soon as she gets home to her empty house, she feels instantly isolated and lonely. She becomes self-aware that her nighttime binges are really cravings for love, intimacy, and connection. This is an aha moment for your client. And from this space of emotional honesty and self-awareness, she's able to create real, lasting change. As a coach, you get to congratulate your client for having the emotional courage and self-awareness to face the root cause of the craving. Since awareness is always the first step toward transformation, together you are now able to explore small steps that she can take to bring greater balance into her relationships. Or imagine that you have a client who has been feeling a lot of pain in his shoulders and neck. He mentions that he's been lifting weights a bit more than usual, so he's pretty sure that's why he's sore. As the brilliant coach that you are, you know that your client's body is sending him a message and that there's a root cause for the pain that he feels. You choose to dig deeper into the possible imbalances in his circle of life by asking some high mileage questions. Not surprising to you, your client launches into the fact that he's been feeling really overwhelmed because he feels so responsible for so many people, both at work and at home. He says, ah, oh, I feel like I'm literally carrying the world on my shoulders. As soon as he utters those words, he has that magical aha moment, recognizing that the pain that he feels in his shoulders is a result of the weight of responsibility that he feels. By bringing his issue back to his circle of life, he's able to recognize the imbalances in his work and home life that are manifesting as physical pain. And with you as his guide on the side, he can make the necessary changes to lessen this burden. Four. Remember that everything is connected. Your client will often come to you with several different issues and complaints. And at first glance, they may all seem distinct and unrelated. But if you realize that everything is connected, then you can look for patterns that tie these symptoms together. You might be surprised to find that your client's long list of issues are often all related to one area of their circle of life being out of balance. For example, you could have a client who has IBS, headaches, and has started breaking out in hives. On the surface, this could mean so many different things, and each symptom could come from a different cause. 
After delving more deeply into coaching, however, you and your client come to realize that all three of these symptoms are the result of their demanding, stressful, and nerve-wracking career. By taking steps to bring balance to this one area of their circle of life, all three symptoms may start to dissipate. By allowing your client to openly share all of their issues and then having them dig deeper into the root cause of these issues, they too will notice their patterns, creating those magical aha moments. In a similar way that several symptoms may connect to the same area of primary food, many imbalances in primary food areas often arise from one issue. For example, after going through the circle of life exercise, your client is looking to work on her career, physical activity, and relationships. In her career, she's really stressed and finds that she can't depend on other people to support her. She works late nights and refuses to stop until things are perfect, resulting in constant burnout and overwhelm. In terms of her exercise routine, she is a weekend warrior. She works out two hours every Saturday and Sunday, but can't seem to find the time during the week to exercise because she stays late at work refining her various projects. In the area of relationships, she's been struggling to find a romantic partner for quite some time. She's finding that she's really clear about what she wants, but the men that show up are never quite good enough. On the surface, these may seem like three different issues, but taking a broader and more holistic approach, you can see that there's a common thread of perfectionism running through all of these areas of her circle of life. By making this connection, you are better able to coach your client through the root issue rather than the physical manifestations. In this case, it doesn't matter which area of the circle of life you start with first, as they all tie back to the same root issue of control and perfectionism. I use this example to ease your potential concern of knowing which area of the circle of life to start with. There's no right way, so start anywhere, wherever your client leads you. As everything is connected, working on one area will lead to improvement in all areas. Five, let your client lead. Always notice the first and last things that your clients say. This is often what is most important and ready to be healed and transformed. Don't be afraid to allow silence and ask high mileage questions right off the bat here. Equally important as paying attention to the first and very last thing that your clients say is paying attention to any tangents that they might go on during their time together. These are often clues to what is most important to the client and on the surface ready to be addressed at this time. Six, tune into your client's nonverbal cues. Pay attention to their subtle mannerisms as well as the energy between and behind their words. This is important when coaching your clients through primary food because by tuning into their energy, you can sense whether there's an emotional charge behind what they're saying. As you pay attention to their nonverbal cues, you will sense when to dig deeper with high mileage questions. Imagine you have a client who mentions that he has a stomach ache after eating bread. He asks you for a list of gluten-free options and also wants advice for what to eat when his coworkers and friends want to go out. As your client asks you for your advice, you notice that he seems agitated in his body and anxious in his mannerisms. Right away, you recognize that this is an opportunity to coach him through primary food. Picking up on his anxious nonverbal cues, you might use reflection and ask a high mileage question such as, 
I noticed that you seem anxious and worried when you asked me about this. Why do you think that is? As your client responds, he realizes that he's feeling overwhelmed in general about what he should and shouldn't eat. He notices that he actually has a stomach ache after eating almost anything because he's constantly stressed out about what he's supposed to be eating. His worry and doubt is literally making him feel sick. By noticing your client's nonverbal cues, you can empower them to tune into their own body's messages. In doing so, your clients will cultivate more self-awareness and you will experience greater confidence in coaching them through primary food. I hope that what I went over today has given you more insight into coaching through primary food. Keep practicing with yourself, your peers, your accountability coach, and eventually your clients. Remember, the more exposure you have to coaching, the easier it will be to trust this process. Until next time, get out there and practice coaching with the powerful concept of primary food. Have fun with this, and remember that we're always here to support you. Coach through primary food. Use these tips to coach your clients through primary food so that you can get to the root cause behind their health concerns. Number one, trust your intuition. There is no need to prepare for your sessions. Just show up ready to hold space, listen, and ask questions. Your intuition and that of your clients will guide the session in the most meaningful and effective way. Number two, Embrace the gray. There's no standard formula for coaching your clients through primary food. Step outside your comfort zone and practice releasing the need to control the sessions with outlines and structure. Number three, come back to the circle of life. Use the circle of life as foundational tool when coaching clients to develop the six-month program. By continually bringing their attention back to the circle of life, you can help clients recognize if they have any imbalances in their primary food. From this space of awareness, they can make changes to improve these areas and transform their lives. Number four, remember that everything is connected. Anticipate your client's symptoms are like all connected. Look for patterns in the imbalances and concern that clients bring to every session and help them recognize this phenomenon. Number five, let your clients lead. Remember that you are not a sage of the stage. You are a guide on the side. Allow your clients to lead each, each and every session, trusting that they know what is most important to bring forth and they have the solution to every problem within. Notice the first and the last your clients say and pay attention to any tangent they may have during the sessions. Number six, tune in your client's nonverbal cues. Notice your client's nonverbal cues, body posture, mannerism, tics energy level, facial expressions, and invite them to become aware of their body's important messages. Practice these tips with your accountability coach and clients. Remember, the more exposure to and practice you have coaching through primary food, the more confident you will become. Hi, it's nice to see you again. Welcome to your student success check-in. How are you doing with the content? 
Are you trying some new things? Are you practicing coaching skills like active listening and high mileage questions? We're nearing the halfway point of the health coach training program. So it's a great time to check in with yourself. Okay, there's a lot coming up in the next few weeks. So let's dive in. Test two. Your second test is coming up soon. Again, you have to pass two of four tests to graduate. Here's what else you need to know. This test covers the content in modules 11 through 20. You'll get an email Monday morning, as you do for each module, letting you know that it's open. You can also find the opening and closing dates in the course schedule on the documents page of the Learning Center. You must complete the test within two hours of starting it, and you have to pass two of four tests with a score of at least 70%. And a study guide is released at Module 20 in the Learning Center. Great, let's keep going. Health Coach websites, marketing materials resources, and business development and finance resources. These resources are all opening in the Business Toolkit soon. First, the Health Coach website opens at Module 20. You'll receive an email with information about how to create your website. Second, marketing materials resources. These open at Module 24 and include things like creating an action plan, writing newsletters, creating press kits and brochures, and getting testimonials. Finally, business development and finance resources. These open at Module 25 and include things like developing business-savvy habits, creating email groups, and using program financial forms. So that's what's happening in the Business Toolkit. There are a few other exciting things coming up, which brings me to bonus business. This content begins in Module 20. You'll see it right in each module's contents from here until the end of the course. It's completely optional, but it's there for you, and it can apply to you whether or not you want to pursue health coaching. So why not check it out, right? If you have the time, it's there for you. Something else really exciting is coming up pretty soon. Mid-Certificate Badge. You'll receive your Mid-Certificate Badge in Module 25. You're probably wondering what that means. Basically, we think you're ready to start seeing paying clients. This is an important milestone, and I hope you celebrate it. Celebrate all that you've accomplished in this course so far. Now, maybe you're already seeing paying clients, and that's fantastic. However, maybe you're still unsure. That's perfectly okay. It's important to honor where you are. At the same time, I want you to challenge yourself to step a little outside your comfort zone and go for it. Just like health histories, you gain confidence and skill with experience. In fact, that's my tip for this check-in. Spend more time practicing skills. Remember how we discussed that you'll use your time in different ways throughout the course? At this point, you might find that you're spending more time focusing on coaching. Ultimately, it's up to you where you want to invest your energy. Still, you'll probably want to create space for your coaching practice more during the second half of the course, if that aligns with your intention. You'll be able to practice coaching skills in your coaching circle calls, which start around test three. As a reminder, you have to attend four of six coaching circle calls to graduate. You'll start receiving emails when the scheduler opens around module 27. These can explain how you can sign up for your preferred day and time, so be on the lookout for those. The more health histories you can do before the coaching circle calls, the better. The calls will be much more valuable if you have coaching experience to draw from. Okay, 
I know that was a lot. Lots of exciting things coming up. Take a deep breath and take it one step and one module at a time. Remember, we give you all that you need, but you just have to start doing it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Start a website and refine it later. Try some marketing exercises and adapt them later. Create a newsletter and see where it goes. Hopefully you're starting to get the idea here. To recap, test two is coming up soon. Check the business toolkit each week to see what's opening there. Enjoy the bonus business content within the modules. Celebrate your mid-certificate badge. Keep an eye out for coaching circle emails and practice coaching skills. Before we wrap up, take a minute to think about what kind of support you're needing right now and where you might find it. Pause the video here to think about that. Are you ready to dive into the second half of the program? Remember, you can always refer to the Help Center and you can always reach out to student success by calling or emailing us. You can also refer to the support resources and accountability handouts and the syllabus for more information. Trust the process and best of luck as you continue through the Health Coach Training Program. Until next time.